Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and today we're looking at another classic Tech Stuff episode. This was a really fun one. Ben Bolin and I did a whole series of episodes about Area 51, a.k.a. Groom Lake, the most famous secret base in the world. And in this episode, we start talking about the mythology of Area 51, which gets pretty crazy and a lot of fun. And I hope you guys really enjoy it. Here we go with this classic episode, the mythology of Area 51. This episode, we're looking at the crazy. Yes, sir. We are looking at all of the rumors, conspiracy theories, and, uh, Let's just say unsupported anecdotes. Yeah. To be diplomatic. That's very diplomatic. Yeah. (laughs) So, so quick rundown, just so that we're all on the same page. Area 51, also known as Groom Lake, is a facility. Uh, it's out in Nevada. It's near the, what, well, it's near the Nevada test site where a lot of nuclear tests were held. In fact, some during the lifetime of Area 51. That's right. Uh, it is, uh, run by the CIA and the Air Force. Uh, Lockheed is essentially the main contractor that does work there. It's not the only one. We've seen some other uh, aircraft from different companies tested at that facility as well. And uh, the whole purpose of it is to be remote from everywhere else so that secret tests of top-secret spy technology can happen without anyone learning about it. Because as we've said, if you want to be an effective spy, part of that means people can't be aware of the tools that you have at your disposal. Right. Yeah. And which, as we say, that's why it is in a Goldilocks zone for its for its purpose. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite points that you made in the previous episode, uh, I believe it was the first installment, was that this was just far enough away to be so inconvenient to get to that people people wouldn't try. Yeah, it was it's a remote desert location on a, a dry lake bed. Mm-hmm. And so it was close enough where you could get supplies mm-hmm. from places like Las Vegas, which is less than 100 miles away, uh but far enough away where you know your your casual traveler is unlikely to stumble upon it, especially once you start posting lots of warning signs with scary wording on it warning people away. Oh yeah. Now, the fact that it is remote the fact that you do have these signs that warn people away, uh, the fact that you have to bring people in to work at this facility, and most of them are commuting in maybe on a weekly basis, which means you have to figure out how do you transport them from some place like Las Vegas to the actual uh, facility itself. All of that means that you're leaving just enough traces mm-hmm. to really start to pique people's interest, right? Yeah, it's uh, tantalizing. Oh, and uh, point of order for the listeners out there, uh, Jonathan, we should probably tell everybody, check out the first two episodes of this before you listen to this one. Right. It'll make this make, I can't say more sense, <laughs> but you'll at least understand the references. That's the best way to say yeah. it. Yeah. So, so yeah, we've got just enough information for the typical person to say, I really want to know what's happening there. Mm-hmm. And because of the security uh, uh, features that are in place, including roving bands, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about a little bit later of security personnel. Uh, it means that you end up having to fill in a lot of gaps. And when that happens, when people are given the leeway 
to try and fill in. Like, the, there's the big, here there be dragons on the map. Yeah, yeah. That's where you get the dragons, right? You're mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know what's out there. It's probably dangerous, so we're just going to slap dragons on it and call it a day. Yeah, which is, you know, at heart, a valuable instinct to have, right? It's It's caution, but... What's happened here is that, as we're going to see, um, one thing with a grain of truth, such as, oh, there's something I'm not allowed to go see, uh, became embellished mm-hmm. and then exaggerated. And many times uh, the people saying these things sincerely do believe this. They're, yeah. They're not hucksters, right? Yeah, yeah, this this isn't necessarily someone who's trying to get a book deal or trying to get uh, on the talk show circuit. It may be someone who has just enough information to leap to some conclusions that are not supportable. Also, we should say, there are times where people make guesses where either they, they latch on to something that is actually true or they've mm-hmm. got part of the story. So, just because something is a, a theory or a rumor or a conspiracy of some sort doesn't mean that there's nothing there, right? Right. So here's a great example. And it's one of the more grounded, no pun intended, examples <laughs> of the mythology around Area 51. There's the the myth that there is a giant subterranean network of uh, tunnels and facilities that are underneath the ground. So that way... When you get that overhead view of Area 51, keep in mind, Area 51 is restricted airspace that goes all the way up into space. Yep. But there are satellites since the, the 1980s that have taken multiple images of that area. So if you know that, in fact, you're going to be photographed from space, there that seems logical that you would want to go underground, right? Sure. So yeah. you can understand why people would say, oh, well, it makes sense. You you want to have that secrecy. You can no longer depend upon it above ground, so you have to go below. Mm-hmm. But this raises some logistical issues, right? Yeah. How do you build an underground base and keep it quiet, especially, as we said in the history podcast, uh, the construction workers that were taken out there probably would have known something about it because they would have been the ones digging. Yeah, I mean, and digging is a big deal. You're talking about a subterranean network. That's a lot of earth that yeah. you have to move. Mm-hmm. And not only do you have to move it, you then have to figure out what do you do with the earth you have taken. You know, when you when you create a hole, mm-hmm. right. that dirt doesn't just magically disappear, right? <laughs> you have to put it someplace. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a logistical issue. And it's an enormous uh, type of endeavor to undertake. I mean, imagine having to create something, a network of tunnels that is stable enough to support the weight of whatever's above it. Mm. Uh, not to mention the idea of like level upon level of subterranean layer, like yeah. you know, Doctor Evil style. <laughs> right. It's it's an enormous task, and it would have required such a huge investment in manpower, mm-hmm. let alone, I don't even think about the cost financially. <laughs> right. just, just the practical manpower necessary to make it, it's not likely. And there, there are some rumors that go so far as to suggest that there are there's an entire underground network of tunnels that connect various bases together. Right, yeah. And... and Really, when you think of the engineering challenge that represents and the uh, the construction that is required, you realize that while it might be technologically possible for us to do it, mm-hmm. it is not really feasible to do it secretly where you have not left any trace at all in the whole process. Right. Now, and I think that's a really good distinction because 
it's not just plausible, but it is probable that there is some sort of below the ground construction at Roswell in, excuse me, at Area 51 in that when you build things, there might be a basement, uh, there might yeah. be a safe room, right. some, something like that. But that is a far, far cry from, uh, what, what do we have here? What's, what's the biggest record, Jonathan? 50, 50 stories. 50 stories, yes. Yeah, imagine a 50 story skyscraper, but underground. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if you've ever seen a skyscraper being built, you know, this is a process that takes some time. And we, we here at HowStuffWorks, <laughs> we moved into this, you know, we're in an office that has recently, over the last maybe five or six years, seen a lot of growth with the buildings around us. And so we've actually watched year over year as skyscrapers mm-hmm. were being built. And it takes a really long time. Uh, and I know people would say, yeah, but this is a top secret establishment. You know, you, they'd really pour a lot into it. If you've ever seen the government at work, <laughs> the right. U.S. government at work. Speed is not one of the adjectives you would typically use. <laughs> right. Where uh, if the U.S. government was a superhero, it would probably not be the Flash. No, I mean everyone no. knows that. Maybe the Blob. Yeah, I was going to go safe with Captain America. Okay, but, <laughs> well, all right. I was he, I was immediately going to all the villains. I was thinking the Blob <laughs> or maybe the Juggernaut. You know. <laughs> oh, the Juggernaut's cool though. Yeah. Uh, that's a different podcast. We we've got to get to one of the one of the biggest uh, things here. The biggest conspiracies we hear about with Area 51. Well, first off, spoiler alert: the real conspiracy is: are there secret spy planes? Yes, yeah. there are. And that, that, that's exactly what it's for. And that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, the first off, the fact that that can even be possible is yeah. kind of frightening. We talked in the yeah. last couple of podcasts about some of the the aircraft that were under development there that remained secret a good 20 years after they had finished testing. Mm-hmm. And that's when they were unveiled. Uh, there, there was one that, that I think had a run from 83 to 85, something like that. And it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, uh, acknowledged by the government until 96, which was the first time anyone outside of that air, that program had seen it. Um, and I think that was maybe tacit blue, mm. but it was one of those that just when you saw the aircraft, you thought, wow, what a weird looking thing. I can't believe that this remained a secret. Granted, they only built two of them mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were under strict wraps over at Area 51. I mean, it never got further out from, from that area. Like it, even the tests would be done at night. So right. it limited when uh, the, the potential of even being spotted. So. Ah, but they were the, the genuine articles of conspiracy were indeed spotted in the sky. And that brings us to, as we were saying, the, the biggest part of the area 51. Are you, mythology. Are you talking UFOs? UFOs? Yeah. Yeah, man. We're UFO and officially. Yeah. Unidentified flying objects, UFOs, more often than not, uh, they are uh, attributed to being alien, as right. in extraterrestrial in mm-hmm. nature. Yeah. Area 51 features heavily in tons of different alien stories, mm-hmm. both uh, both the kind that we see on the big screen, like Independence Day. Yeah, I was the, fam- the famous sequence where they go down to Area 51, where they have... Uh, not just aliens, but their their hardware mm-hmm. uh, that has been studied for years. And, you know, it's revealed that a lot of 
technology we depend upon today has been reverse engineered from this alien technology. Still can't build a decent spaceship, though. No, no, we can't build a decent spaceship. However, we have figured out that you can introduce a computer virus as long as you have an Apple MacBook laptop. Which... To this day, <laughs> to this day, my friend, that's still, that still bothered me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, spoiler alert again, guys. But, but yeah, so, so people, people started seeing UFOs and it is correct to call them that because I, I think there's one of the distinctions that we we're about to make, right? Um, yeah. a UFO, unidentified flying object, is simply that. Yeah, it just means that you personally cannot identify what that object is. It doesn't mean it's unidentifiable. Right. It may very well be that there's a small group of people who know exactly what that object is, like the like the stealth technology we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Those stealth programs, when they were under development, were strict secrets, and only a few people, relatively few people, knew about them. Anyone outside that who would have seen one of these aircraft flying around naturally they would not be able to identify it. They, there was no correlative. They could mm-hmm. say, oh, this looked like a such and such. These things looked really crazy. So uh, calling it a, a UFO is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot identify it. Calling Making the leap from UFO to alien is a little bit of a problem. So yeah. this brings us to probably the most famous alien uh, incident in all of United States history, something that is, that factors into numerous, I'd say dozens, if not hundreds of different conspiracy theories. Absolutely. The Roswell incident. Now, Roswell is in New Mexico, uh, which for those of you who are not in the United States is a completely separate state from Nevada. It's in a completely different place. And, you know, sometimes there's a pet peeve of mine, Jonathan, yeah. is that People often conflate Area 51 or Groom Lake and the incident in Roswell. Right. And so two things. These are incidents separated both in space and time. Thank you. Right. Roswell, New Mexico is hundreds of miles (laughs) away from Area 51, like uh, almost a thousand miles away. Mm -hmm. I think it's somewhere around 800 miles away. Uh, 880, actually, 1,416 kilometers According to Google Maps. Thank you, Google Maps, for letting me know how far apart Roswell, New Mexico and Area 51 are. That's what they're um, there for. That's exactly it. Uh, so, by the way, don't don't rely upon Google Maps for turn by turn directions to Area 51. You know, you'll just end up in Las Vegas. Did you uh, did you do it by driving or walking? Uh, I did it by by driving, although walking would have been hilarious. <laughs> walking would have been like, at this point, people are going to ask you to turn around. Uh, so, uh, or at this point, you've probably died of dehydration. So the other thing I said was that they're separated by time. Yeah. The Roswell incident happened on July 2nd, 1947. So for those of you who listened to our first episode about Area 51, you remember that it was the mid-1950s mm-hmm. when the CIA settled on Groom Lake as the 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 future home of Area 51. It was like 1955 was when construction began. Mm -hmm. So this is almost a decade apart when of these two events. So then you have uh, the the, the actual story of the Roswell incident is that some people in Roswell, New Mexico, saw some strange floating objects that they could not identify, unidentified flying objects. Sometimes they're referred to as being kind of disc-shaped, but... Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is that we're so far distanced from the initial event that 
uh, the story has not remained consistent through all the different retellings. Yeah, and I can speak to a little bit of that because we have we have some copies of the newspaper articles that changed, and because they changed, uh, there's there's a very interesting thing here. It's the interpretation of that. Uh, people who believe that there was a, some sort of extraterrestrial incident, mm-hmm. somebody. Somebody managed to drive a spacecraft well enough to get to Earth. But not well enough to stay above Earth. Right. And then uh, the news found out about it, and they got shut down. They had to change their story. Or did they just correct the reporting when they had more information? Right. That's a that's a good question. Right. Uh, like, yeah. did, did some gentlemen wearing black suits and sunglasses show up at the newspaper and say, you need to... You need to address this. I mean, and Jonathan, that's possible. But if, if it happened, it wasn't because of aliens. That's right. So get moving on. We're talking about the crash, just spotting these objects in the air wasn't the only thing that happened with the Roswell incident. What specifically went on from there was that some people found debris on the ground. Mm-hmm. And it was described as being shiny and metallic in nature. No one was really sure what it was actually made of at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this incident started to become embellished upon over time. In fact, there's some versions of the story where they didn't just find uh, physical debris from some flying object, but also bodies. Ah, yes. And this is where we get into the alien stuff, where Mm. supposedly there were these bodies of creatures that had unusual features, and they were whisked away by the government. Uh, And ultimately, some people say that that's they went to Area 51. The Area 51's purpose was not to study strange materials, although we did eventually get some Soviet aircraft at Area 51 where they were tested, like Mm -hmm. the MiGs. But it's not meant to be a scientific laboratory. That's not the purpose of Area 51. So it would make no sense Mm -hmm. to send any kind of extraterrestrials there. It also doesn't make sense to send extraterrestrial bodies to a place that hasn't been built yet. Right. That's yeah. A, that's a big one. That's a, that, it's a bump in the road, my Yeah, friend. it's a little bit of a, <laughs> little bit of a, a problem with the story. Uh, now, what w- the official story from the government was that the debris came from weather balloons mm-hmm. and that there were no bodies. In fact, they, we should say right now, there's no evidence at all that anyone ever came across a body. That was something that was added to this story over time. Yeah, sorry guys, that autopsy on YouTube yeah. is most likely a hoax. Uh, and by totally, most likely, I mean, it's yeah. a hoax. It's it's yeah, there there are special effects uh Experts who have actually commented on it and mm-hmm. somewhat derisively, <laughs> somewhat yeah. like like they should have hired me. I could have done a much better right. job. But um, there is there there is no no hard evidence that there was uh, even from the debris they found. Yeah, when they were looking at it, because there really was debris, right? Yeah. and they really did find it, but they didn't find enough to have built an entire thing. Yeah. That no. Could carry a person. No, no. This, this, so the official story from the government was that these were weather balloons. They were meant specifically to, uh, to study the weather at high altitudes. Now, as it turns out, that's mm-hmm. not the real story, but we will get to there in a second. So, uh, this was one of those things where people were saying, it doesn't look like any weather balloon I've ever seen, which is true. It didn't. I've seen both balloons and the weather, sir. <laughs> yeah, this is neither of those two <laughs> things. So, moving on to the, the, you know, kind of 
<laughs> looking at the story another way. Yeah. One version of this that I was not aware of until a friend of the show, Nate Langson, he's the editor of uh, Wired.co.uk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he turned me on to this. I had never heard about this. Uh, it's a, a book written by Annie Jacobson called Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base. Now, full disclosure, I have not read this book yet. Okay. Uh, I read a synopsis of the book and a synopsis of the story we're about to cover. So this may not actually be accurate to the book itself. I want to make that clear. That's fair. I've also heard that most of the book is pretty much what we covered in our first two episodes of the podcast, a very thorough uh, description of the history of Area 51. But there's a section apparently devoted to the Roswell incident and Area 51's supposed involvement in that in which the story gets even weirder, I think, than mm-hmm. aliens. And this story involves Nazis and communists. So, you know, it's only missing Indiana Jones to make it really a, a, a Hollywood film. So the story that she tells, according to a source, I don't know what her source was. I don't a know. A source. Yeah, a source. I don't know if she names the source in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the synopsis I said said anonymous, but again, I haven't read the book. Right. But according to the synopsis, <clears throat> The story is that a Nazi doctor, uh, Joseph Mengele, actually, the SS officer, uh, who, uh, survived the, the World War II and then, and then eventually escaped to South America, that Mengele had worked on behalf of Joseph Stalin doing these horrific procedures on children resulting in children around the age of 12 yeah. With abnormally shaped heads, large eyes that are uh, of an odd shape, mm-hmm. and that the whole idea was that they were going to pilot some simple aircraft to fly around the United States and land and essentially stir crap up yeah. and scare people. Yeah, exactly. This I- idea that they would, <laughs> this idea that they they would fake aliens. Yeah, in order to create a panic, essentially doing a war of the worlds type event. Uh, one step closer to reality. War, War of the Worlds, for those who don't remember <laughs> or don't know what this is, um, it was a, 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 an Orson Welles project, a radio program that, uh, was portrayed in such a way that people who tuned in without knowing that it was actually a fictionalized radio program began to think that there was actually, uh, an alien invasion happening. It was this sort of famous little blip on the radar. Of of people freaking out because they weren't aware that, uh, in fact, it was a fictional account, uh, something that we still see today mm-hmm. uh, with things like mermaids. At any rate, that's enough commentary <laughs> on that. But, yeah, the uh, the the story that she relays is that Mingala had done these these hor- horrific procedures mm-hmm. and that the bodies found at the Roswell incident, which remember, there was never any evidence that bodies were found. Uh, were in fact human children that then were whisked away. Uh, I think there are some big problems with this particular story. Problem number one, Mengele was on the run from the Soviets. Right. He did not, I mean, the Soviets were the ones who were, who were approaching when Hitler committed suicide, right? They, rather than be captured yep. by the Soviets, um, Hitler, uh, committed suicide. And Mengele was trying to escape with records that he had, uh, 
he had created in, at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Um, so he eventually escaped Germany. He did at one point go back into Soviet occupied territory in order to retrieve some of these documents, but he evaded capture and eventually escaped to South America mm-hmm. and then moved around quite a bit while uh, on the run. Yeah. Yeah. He was being, he was being pursued by agents, both Soviet and American. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's unlikely that he would have collaborated with Joseph Stalin mm-hmm. and certainly unlikely that he would have been allowed to escape. <laughs> yeah. The Soviets. As well. Yeah. Um, so that already is a problem. Secondly, uh, it would be a real problem, the, the idea of people being fooled long enough to not realize these were humans. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then there's the other, there's the other question. Why would they crash there? Yeah. And not in a more occupied place? Why not New York City or something like that? Why, um, I know they probably get spotted, but then also, and this, this is a cruel thing to say, but, uh, why would you specifically need that one very evil man to do that sort of operation? Right, right, exactly. It, it's not like if you're going to yeah. if you're going to do something so inhuman, uh, is, is there? I mean, narratively, it it's a great story in the sense that the only one person is this twisted to pull this off. Right. But in reality, we know, unfortunately, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That if you really did have the the will to do something this horrible, you could probably do it without having to to go after the devil himself, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the whole story is is meant to appeal to our dark imaginations, and it's a terrible thing. But it's also one of those things that you could say, yeah, I can imagine this actually playing out in some way. Ultimately, you also have to ask the question, what's the effect you're going for? If the effect you're going for is to cause a panic, I can't think of anything that would have caused a bigger panic than having Soviet airmen being able to land in U.S. territory without any alien cover story. You don't need that to cause a scare. There's really no benefit here. Like the, the, the entire operation does not seem to have an actual return on investment. So it doesn't make sense from that perspective either. Yeah. So the, the Nazis though are involved in, in some other conspiracy theories about area 51, like the, the UFOs uh, mm-hmm. that are seen are a product of, you know, Nazi experiments toward the close of the war. Sure. And a lot of that comes from a very real, uh, and kind of frightening thing that the United States did, uh, with Operation Paperclip, which you know about. When right. They, when they brought over some surviving scientists from Germany. Right, right, right. Yeah. When you're, when you're, when you get the rocket scientists mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. Who worked over in Germany to then come to the United States and continue their work in science and, and rocketry specifically. But now they're working for a different boss. They're working for the United States government. Uh, and partly because they're getting guarantees from the U.S. government that they won't be tried as criminals right. for their work uh, for the Nazi regime. So, yeah, there's certain real, real things that were happening in history mm-hmm. that were probably enough to help fuel this kind of uh, conspiracy here in the United States. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you didn't have to look far to see real instances of some pretty shady dealings on both sides uh, but without having to make stuff up. Right. And now also one thing that didn't help the government's case in, in, as far as their official story goes 
is that it turned out they they were telling the truth, but telling it slant, as Emily Dickinson would say. Right. They were they were not weather balloons that were being uh, deployed out over in New Mexico. They were balloons, though. Yeah, they were balloons that were part of a spy program called Project Mogul, which was a top secret experiment using high altitude balloons that were carrying microphones. And the idea was the microphones would be able to detect sounds from Soviet nuclear tests so that we in the United States would have a clue when that was going on. And we that would help us kind of know how far along the Soviets were with their nuclear program compared to our own nuclear program. Mm -hmm. So there was, again, this need for secrecy. We didn't want the Soviets to know that we, in fact, had developed this technology to listen out for uh, these these sound waves. because we didn't want them to try and come up with different ways of testing their nuclear arms and therefore hiding it from us. Yeah, or so, reverse engineering it and hearing what we're doing. Exactly. That's also another another uh, good point. So the cover story of weather balloons was necessary to protect the secrecy of the spy program. But it had nothing to do with aliens. It had everything to do with spying. It maybe it might have even been to the government's benefit that people were latching on to the alien story because it Mm -hmm. took attention away from what it was really meant to do. So there's not a whole lot of incentive upon the government's part to come out and say specifically, guys, no, it's not aliens (laughs) because it it helped keep the attention away. But you don't want it to you don't want that story to run rampant either because it could legitimately start causing either a panic or just a growing distrust in the government itself. Sure, and they don't need any help. That, <laughs> That's regardless right. of what what uh, what your political beliefs are. We speaking of beliefs, this is going to be a lot of fun uh, for me personally. I think for you too, because one thing that always keeps the Area Fifty One legends alive is that there. It seems like every year there's someone who comes out and says, "Well." I was person X at place Y, and I know the truth, and now I will finally reveal it. And you're thinking of someone specific in this case, right? I am specifically thinking of Bob Lazar. Yeah, Robert Lazar or Bob Lazar, who claimed to have worked on a project in which the military had come into possession of alien technology, And his job was to reverse engineer that alien technology to learn how it works Mm -hmm. so that we could take advantage of that tech here on Earth and thus kind of leap forward what would normally be the process of developing tech. So instead of, you know, constantly testing and improving and refining, we could jump straight ahead, you know, skip eight steps in that process and jump straight to, you know, miraculous smartphones that react to our touch, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so he claimed that he had worked at a facility that was near Groom Lake, so not technically at Area 51, but adjacent to it. It was the real secret place. It's called S4. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so secret that it didn't even get a full name. (laughs) Um, It just gets a letter and a number designation. And it's he said that it housed no fewer than nine spacecraft. Uh, Here's the thing, that a lot of his, his claims to his background don't check out. Right. Right. Like yeah. he, he claims to have uh, advanced degrees from MIT and from Caltech, but there's no record of him there. Now, granted, some people say that that's evidence of the conspiracy. He says so. Yeah. That, in fact, this shows that the government was so interested in keeping it a secret that they have wiped clean his background. Although to do that, 
You would also have to wipe clean the memories of every professor and every student who would mm-hmm. have also attended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see that this this kind of domino effect, how how wide those ripples would have to go in order for this to remain an effective secret, it, it becomes unmanageable at w- some point. Wouldn't it be easier at this point? My question would be for for many of these cases is why did someone go to so such great lengths to keep you alive? Yeah, because from from a government's perspective, we know that if they're picking one kind of skullduggery, they'll pick the easier one, which is usually an assisted fall off a building yeah. or something like that. Well, you, you know, know, assassination is just off the table, right? Right. That, oh, that yeah. can never be done. Like, yeah, how do you how do you uh if it did come down to there's this one person who has tons of information like it's essentially Snowden. Yeah, there's right? an Edward Snowden. There's an Edward Snowden of Area 51 who is ready. He has access to all the information. He's ready to spill the beans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you want to discredit him. You don't go to every single person uh, in his past. Don't and, tell anybody about this. Guy. Right. Yeah. It's just it's just not practical. Right. It's, it's it would be a monumental task. So essentially what we're getting around to is that Lazar's. Um, his claims to his, his credentials mm-hmm. are suspect. Right. And that, that is a very diplomatic way to put it. Uh, of course, you know, we're also showing that his side of it is that someone is erasing his past to discredit him as, as you said. You know, Jonathan, recently, Mr. Lazar, uh, in the past few years went, uh, back into the public eye. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess more into the mainstream public eye and, he was asked to react to the CIA's official admittance uh, of Area 51's existence, mm-hmm. which, as we know, didn't happen for a little while. And uh, he said he was not impressed because this was a very tiny baby step forward. I think that's the quote he used. And uh, he was waiting for them to reveal S4, which is the, the site he says he worked at, reverse right. engineering these things. Now, he has many, many claims uh he speaks at length about interspecial politics about injuries he suffered by technology that we won't hear about for several decades uh but i i really like the point you made that um one of the other things people who believe him see as proof is um what they perceive as a inexplicable jump in technology right right well, the truth is that if you look at any technology closely enough, you will see incremental improvements. It's very, very rare that we have someone come out with a brand new piece of technology that has no precedent to it. Right. right? Even Philofondure. Like, yeah, exactly. Television. Perfect example. So, yeah, you look at these things like television was really building upon the developments of radio. And you think, OK, well, what about Tesla and Marconi? Well, they were working on research that had preceded them as well. Mm-hmm. This, these are all if you if you really dig down t- into it, you know, you look at the invention of the light bulb. You look at all of these sort of inventions that we we take for granted. We like the stories that say this inventor came up with this idea and mm-hmm. implemented it. And now it exists. I and mean, before it never did. Sure. Usually the truth is much more complicated with lots of different things leading into that invention, including earlier inventions that may not have been practical 
but showed a working concept. And then this other inventor, like Thomas Edison, right. comes along <laughs> and takes that takes that concept and makes it practical. So now it's something that we can actually use, as opposed to just a, a cool idea, but we didn't know how to to you know capitalize mm-hmm. on it. So, you know, I think most of the advances we've seen. Have over the over the decades have been examples of this where people have made incremental improvements and maybe grabbed together multiple pieces of technology and then and then package them in such a way that it's a really compelling piece of tech. But if you break it down component by component, you start to see the actual process of this creating something, refining it, tweaking it, mm-hmm. putting it out again, refining it again. I, I don't see any enormous leaps where someone has jumped well ahead of everywhere else. Maybe Claude Shannon and his, uh, his computer science with using binary logic, uh, his approach to computer science was pretty much fully formed, but that's kind of similar to Albert Einstein and his theories of relativity. These were ideas that both men had developed over years. And then they presented them as complete pictures. So to us, the outsiders, right. it looks like a person just came up with a brilliant uh, process fully formed instantaneously. The truth is it actually took several years to build that up. And even then they were building on previous thoughts mm-hmm. and, and uh, knowledge. They were just incorporating it in a new way. Yeah, but what about the lasers? Okay, so lasers are an issue, right? <laughs> um, I'm glad you brought up lasers. One of the things that have has often been attributed to Area 51 is energy weapons. Mm-hmm. So uh, this ties into the Strategic Defense Initiative, often referred to derisively as Star Wars. Yeah, this was the program in the 1980s. And I, I promise that I will do an episode about uh, the Star Wars program that will go into full detail I know I've got a lot of listeners who have asked me to do it, and I, uh-huh. I really want to at some point, but it's going to be a little bit further down the road. But it's, um, you know, the whole idea was that it was going to be a, a system that would shoot down incoming ICBMs, mm-hmm. intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, this was the height of the Cold War, uh, 1980s. I mean, propaganda was ridiculous in both the Soviet Union and the United States. Oh, I, gr- sure. I grew up in that era, and I remember, like, the Russians being the bad guys all the time. Uh-huh. You know, from from uh, uh, everything from Red Dawn to Rocky Four. So anyway, um, or was it three? It might have been three, Rocky Three. Uh, at any rate, the the idea here was that the energy weapons that would shoot down these missiles were supposedly under development at Area 51. Again, not really the purpose for Area 51. I mean, you right. could you could understand them uh, testing such a device because that is kind of what they were doing, but they were mostly testing airborne things, not not ground to air uh, technology, it was mostly aircraft that they right. were really focusing on. And not offensive aircraft, just spycraft. Yeah. I mean, there, some of the drones they worked on probably had offensive capabilities, well, yeah. but yeah, yeah it was, true. it was mostly, again, it was mostly reconnaissance type yeah. stuff. We have a bit more to say about the mythology of Area 51. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And now we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So first of all, we don't have any technology powerful enough to control the weather. Weather is an incredibly chaotic system that we do not fully understand. And before you can under, before you can really control something, you have to at least have 
some understanding of how it works. Now, people have conducted experiments with weather manipulation yeah, to things like, influence it. Like seeding clouds, right. that kind of thing. But even this, we can't be fully sure how effective they are, right? Nope. Because here's the problem is that you can't, you can't have a scientific consensus on whether or not something's effective unless you're able to have a control group and you can't really have a control group with weather. I mean, you can, you can have as close to the same, uh, kind of, uh, uh, elements in play sure. in two different, in two different instances. And one, you seed the cloud and one you don't. And then you see how much rain it results. But even then, again, weather is such a complex system that you can't, you can't be completely certain that the seeding is the effective agent there. Right. And, you know, the problem with weather is it's a chaotic system that is one massive cluster of systems. Yeah. So any two points you pick are ultimately in the same system. Yeah. So are they really, is there a control? It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. And then on top of that, you know, things like, um, HARP, which I'm sure you guys have yeah, talked about, yeah, yeah. uh, which was designed to, to actually look at interactions in the ionosphere. Now the ionosphere around Earth, uh, can conduct electricity. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, it, when we get a big electrical impulse in there from something like a solar flare or a coronal mass ejection, it can make the auroras, uh, at the poles really active mm-hmm. because that's, that's kind of the convergence point for the, this electric field. And, uh, and so there's certainly things that interact with atmospheric, um, phenomena, but we still can't control the weather there. Now, it doesn't help. I'm just going to be honest with you, Jonathan. Okay. It does not help uh, to dispel any of the speculation about places like Harp, you know, when it was in operation, mm-hmm. uh, because the descriptions from from the government and from Harp about what they were doing were just cartoonishly vague in some ways. Oh well, so. yeah, I mean, it's the high frequency active auroral research program. Right. Which already, you're, you're 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 thinking there are at least a couple of words in there that I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what they're supposed to mean. Right. Um, and it really was about beaming energy into the ionosphere to yeah. the, the goal for HARP, at least on the government side, the, right. the military funded side was, can we use the ionosphere as a conduit through which we can communicate with distant vehicles like submarines that are yep. under the water? I mean, they really were hoping that this would be a way of doing that. The scientists at HARP were mostly thinking, if we can keep getting funding for what we want to do, which is to study the ionosphere, yep. then we should try and keep that door open for the possibility that this could be a communications tool. Let's keep even them happy. If, <laughs> even if we don't think it'll really work. So, um, <laughs> which happens. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's essentially what happened with HARP. And then eventually the military said, you know what? We're done. And they mm-hmm. pulled the funding. So that, that was the, the story of HARP. Well, a lot of those same stories apply to Area 51. Right. But there's no evidence that there were any weather control systems under development. There's certainly no evidence that anything ever did any actual weather manipulation. Right. So, yeah, uh, yeah that just doesn't that doesn't really fly. Um, and then if there's a piece of tech in science fiction, there's a chance that there's at least some story out there that there's something like that under development at Area 51. Right. You know, warp coils, teleporters, phasers, whatever you want to think about. I realize I was focusing mainly on Star Trek there, but <laughs> but really all of that has at some time or another been uh, attributed to Area 51. Sure. Warp drives, uh, teleportation devices, lightsabers. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Now, we, now we've got Star we got Wars. There. Yeah, we've got there. So th- 
moving on, mm-hmm. another another host of conspiracy theories around Area 51 uh, yes. don't have so much to do with what was actually going on at the facility, but rather the the mysterious shadowy organizations that were behind it all. Yeah, like the the real life smoking man from yeah, X Files. Exactly. Yeah. So. A lot of these conspiracy theories involve organizations that have no official um, uh, designation or they don't they aren't officially acknowledged by the government. Right. So some of them have an, a designation, but they're not, you know, they're they're not in any government files because that's how secret they are. An alleged designation. Yeah. So here the, the big one for Area 51, at least, is the Majestic 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, Majestic 12 is a group that existed many years ago, according to the conspiracy lore, uh, and included people like President Truman, uh, as well as the head of CIA and also like top businessmen, like essentially the pow- most powerful people in the United States at that time. And that their purpose was to solidify power and control worldwide, yeah. right? Like this was going to be like the trilateral commission was often referred to as being a secret organization for these sort of purposes, which is not what it was for. No. Um, uh, there are other organizations that are meant to be like think tanks that have often been kind of compared to this sort of thing. Sure. Uh, the majestic 12, however, is one that appears to have been completely fabricated. Uh, there was a UFO enthusiast named William L. Moore who produced papers that he claimed proved the group's existence. But, a lot of people who have looked at these papers have said that they don't hold up to scrutiny, that the signatures that are there appear to have been copied from other documents and then pasted into them, into yeah. the Majestic 12, the MJ-12 papers, uh, and that there does not appear to be any sort of evidence supporting the existence of such an organization. So if your organization isn't real, then chances are it's not actually the secret one behind Area 51. But that's no fun. So the uh, so the 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 idea that has become you know common currency in a lot of these beliefs is that MJ twelve uh, did exist but was had its world rocked when news of the extraterrestrial crash in nineteen forty seven hit them and then they they've spent the next few decades. Um, you know what? More and more, I think maybe X-Files was inspired <laughs> by some of these myths. Well, you know, and it's very, like, MJ-12 shares a lot of the same kind of uh, traits as other shadowy, uh, conspiratorial, uh, yeah, most a, likely fictional organizations. It's a trope, for yeah, sure. It's yeah. right up there with things like the Illuminati, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have some real people who really do exist that have kind of helped fuel the mystique around Area 51, not necessarily... You know, purposefully setting out to define the mystique, but they're right. part of it. And those are the camo dudes. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the, the folks in the Area 51 uh, biz, the people who like to watch Area 51, not the ones who are actually working there. What they refer to these guys as camo dudes, because they they tend to be wearing uh, uh, desert camouflage outfits. You know, they're out in Nevada. So they're wearing these these kind of uh, desert cam outfits. They uh, travel in pairs. Uh, usually in, in four-wheel drive vehicles. And they are, uh, they're perimeter guards, essentially, is what they, they serve as. So if someone starts to come close to the Area 51 borders, then they may end up encountering a pair of these camo dudes who yep. tend to not appear to be military. Uh, the best guess is, in fact, they are probably part of some contract group uh, that ends up doing security for things like military installations. So not... 
not uh, official military personnel, but rather private citizens who are a part of a, a contractor. Right. And their job is to um, to firmly suggest to people that they should go somewhere else rather than than try and get footage of the area. I have a quotation for you from, okay. from an incident. This is published in the Huffington Post. A UFO conspiracy film crew was detained at gunpoint at the Area 51 gate uh, in 2012. Uh, here's here's the quotation. According to a crew member, uh-huh. uh, a camouflage dress guard carrying an M16 told a member of this team, we could make you disappear and your body will never be found. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say maybe they're playing it up. But the point is that, yes, you're not supposed to be there. As we said in the first few podcasts, don't don't try to go, you guys. Yeah, most of the most of the reports I've read didn't have a point where the uh, the camo dudes were actively aiming weapons in their direction, but rather they were they were visibly armed. Yeah. So that's one thing. You know, it was certainly they were armed, but they weren't. I don't remember reading a whole lot of them either brandishing their weapons. Like as far as I recall, most of the incidents involved their weapons being holstered. Mm-hmm. But they they have in the past, according to a lot of reports, confiscated film back when film was a thing mm-hmm. uh, or demanded to have various equipment turned over to them. Because, again, the facility is all about spy aircraft, so you don't want footage leaking of either the facility or the aircraft that are under development there. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily that big of a mystery, but the fact that you have these guys who are not easily identifiable as belonging to a specific United States government organization, sure, that definitely adds to that mystery. And they're not identifying themselves. And also, to be candid in... In some cases, not all, but in some cases, uh, if you're making a film, then you want to have that sort of conflict. Yeah. So it it's also possible that in some cases these are the threat as it is, as it is, is um, embellished or it's possible that people are purposefully agitating the guards. Yeah, it's it's definitely without being there, we can't say for sure. Exactly. But that, but but both scenarios seem to be plausible to me, mm-hmm. right? I don't know what really unfolded. It may be that the truth is somewhere in between those two those two scenarios, right? Yeah, but you can't accidentally end up there. It's, no, you it's not purposefully were yeah. trying to get there, and this is clearly an area that is off limits, mm-hmm. uh, and is you know is legally off limits. Some people are and, you know, we talked about that in the second episode of the history about how Area 51 gets a whole lot of legal leeway mm-hmm. um, in, in in ways that other places in the United States simply do not. Yeah. Uh, and that that also adds to this curiosity we have of Area 51. I think we've really covered kind of what drives that. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, human beings are curious. Right. We yeah. want to know things. When we see something that we do not understand, often one of our earliest responses is, how does that work? Or what is going on here? What's really happening? Uh, unless it's really scary, in which it's, where's the closest exit? And can I run <laughs> faster than Ben? Right. Because um, you don't have to run the fastest. No, just faster than the slowest person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I'm not the slowest person in the office, <laughs> I'm still got a chance. Yeah. So I, I can certainly see, and, and I feel it too. I mean, I certainly have this curiosity about Area 51. Uh, heck, just just going from the baseline 
most mundane description of what's going on there, there's still so many questions like, uh, how do they, how do they really maintain that level of secrecy? How much does the typical worker at Area 51 know about what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do they make sure that people working on one project remain, uh, oblivious to everything else that's happening? Yeah. How do they schedule these things? What is it like being a pilot <laughs> for one right. of these aircraft? I yeah. mean, there are a lot of questions that we don't have the answers to. So, I, I think, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun tackling this, this subject. And I think it really did merit the three episodes because it is such a touchstone for everything from the political ideology from the 1950s forward to just a pop culture, you know, touchstone. Yeah. Right. It's, I, it's like that's, that's the go to for science fiction. Now I have a question for you. Absolutely. Uh, when, and now that we have, uh, along with the rest of the tech stuff audience, uh, explored, stem to stern, the, the ideas and the reality and the myths of Area 51. I have to ask you, uh-huh. what would you do if one of the, you know, if one of the strangest things, uh, turned out to be true? Uh, you know, I like to, I would like to think that I'm the type of skeptic who, when presented with incontrovertible evidence mm-hmm. that something I believe to be true is in fact not true and that something I thought was just purely made up is in fact the truth that I would be able to accept it. Saying that and actually doing it are two different things, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't know if that's how I would truly react. I like to think that if suddenly there was just pure evidence that in fact the Roswell incident involved aliens sure. and that the aliens were in fact housed at area 51 and all of these crazy conspiracy theories were actually true. Uh, I, I like to believe that I would be able to say, you know what? I never would have bought into this, but it turns out it was right and I was wrong. I'd like to think I could do that. I think you would. I like, okay, incontrovertible evidence then would have to be something like aliens landing at your house (laughs) and And saying like, hey, guys, uh, have you seen our buddies? They showed up maybe, I don't know, you know. 70 Earth years ago, something around there. Right. Uh, yeah, they checked their watch for 70 yeah. Earth years ago, yeah. and they're uh, big fans of tech stuff. Right. And so they, they heard that we had done an episode right. of Area 51. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you're the kind of guy who would go, huh, well, <laughs> yeah, okay, I guess uh, let me let me call my boss. Yeah, I'd be like, son of a, <laughs> all right, well, it turns out I was a big fat head, and I was wrong about everything. Oh, uh, um, that's not everything. But also, yeah, it is true that there is at least, uh, there are several conspiracies, uh, that were at work at Area 51, and we've, ex- we've explored those, and I guess what, what I would want people to take away from this is that there really is amazing, strange, science fiction, action thriller movie level stuff there. Yeah. It just may not be what people are claiming it is. Right. That doesn't mean it's, you know, not interesting. It certainly is. And it's, uh, it's really a, a, Again, an evidence of human achievement for both an engineering side and just a, a secrecy keeping side because it's really hard to keep those secrets. So I do suspect that they they do that by managing how many people are allowed to know any one thing at any one time. Uh, otherwise, you know, loose lips. Well, that wraps up our classic episode, The Mythology of Area 51. Like I said, I really enjoyed researching and talking about that with Ben so many years ago. I remember when I first got the assignment to write How Area 51 Works shortly after I was hired at How Stuff Works, and it was one of the most enjoyable research experiences I've ever had. 
It's just fun to learn about what actually happened, what people thought happened, what people still say are is happening there. It's a really fascinating look into not just military secrets, but human psychology. I hope you guys enjoyed this classic episode, and we'll be back soon with a brand new episode of Tech Stuff. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, why not let me know? Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 